Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 673 with Gallup's Dr. Jim Harder. You may have heard folks reference the engagement data a time or two on this show. Well, this is the mastermind, the scientific brain behind it all. And we're talking about well-being, the key practices that are going to help you to thrive at work and help your colleagues do the same. So you'll learn, one, the five key ingredients to a thriving work life. Two, top tips for developing each area of well-being. And three, what most organizations get wrong about well-being. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP673. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some cool stuff like our Gold Nugget email list, which gives you summary insights from all the guests. They arrive right in your email inbox the day the episode goes live. They take about three minutes to read and you unlock the whole vault of all of those summaries. Pretty cool. That's called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Jim's story. Jim Harder, PhD, is Chief Scientist for Gallup's Workplace Management and Wellbeing Practices. He's the co-author of the number one Wall Street Journal and Washington Post bestseller, It's the Manager. He's also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller 12, The Elements of Great Managing. Dr. Harder's book, the New York Times Wall Street Journal bestseller, Wellbeing, The Five Essential Elements, is based on a global study of what differentiates people who are thriving from those who are not. His research is featured in First Break All the Rules, and he contributed to the forward to Gallup's updated edition of that groundbreaking bestseller. Dr. Harder is the primary researcher and author of the first large-scale multi-organization study to investigate the relationships between work unit employee engagement and business results. His work has appeared in many publications, including the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many others. He received his doctorate in psychological and cultural studies in quantitative and qualitative methods from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, or UNL, if you will. Big thanks to Jim for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Jim. Jim, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into much of your wisdom and research. I understand that your latest here has involved 100 million plus people. What's the story here? Well, we've had a chance to study workplaces all over the world for quite some time. We've studied individual strengths of of people in the workplace. Uh, We've uh, developed various... uh, 
tools for selecting people into the right jobs, and we've studied workplace environments extensively, both inside organizations. So think about thousands of organizations conducting census surveys and mapping the data down to the team level so that managers get a report on how they're building a culture. And then also we do polls of the entire globe, the only real world poll of the, of the entire globe on issues like how engaged people are in their work, uh, their well-being, how they think about their lives and how they experience their days. And so those accumulated interviews with people add up to actually 100 million is pretty conservative. And that's interviews. <laughs> that's a, Not survey responses, <laughs> interviews. That's just huge. <laughs> Hot dog. Uh, well, while we're here, I've got to say the Gallup engagement research has been cited so many times by the hundreds of guests on, on the show that it's just sort of an institution almost. And so I'd love it if you could maybe for everyone who's wondering, how do we bucket it in terms of putting a person into the engaged, not engaged and actively disengaged categories? How do we arrive at there? Well, we started off by studying which elements of human nature at work predict performance outcomes and conducted uh, very large-scale studies looking at which particular survey items predict not only how people feel about their jobs overall, but also performance outcomes like productivity, whether they're likely to stay or leave an organization, profitability, whether customers are getting served the right kind of way safety incidents, absenteeism. We looked at all these kinds of outcomes and we found that there were 12 elements that best explain what a great workplace culture looks like. And so we had questions we tested over and over again. And so there are 12 elements that go into that that formula that we apply to get at uh, the percentage of engaged, not engaged, actively disengaged. And uh, the percentage that we come up with is really a high bar. If you look at our global data, only about 20% of people are engaged globally. And in the U.S., we're talking about 36% as of the the end of 2020. The good news is those numbers have been going up. And when we study organizations, we have seen them move from less than 20% engaged all the way up to over 70%. I say it's a high bar because the criteria is performance. There's a lot of organizations out there using other metrics like combining on a one to five scale, the fours and fives together and coming up with a percentage of favorable, oftentimes calling that engaged. That's a pretty soft metric. That's more like a satisfaction metric than a high bar kind of metric. The The reason for the high bar though, again, is it gets you to a real culture when you improve on it and it gets you to real performance outcomes. you improve on it. So it's a high bar in terms of the the robustness of the study. Is it also a high bar in terms of like the, I don't know, like strictness of the grading on on the 12 questions? Or or how do you think about that? Yeah, it is. Because we looked at how each of those questions relate to performance outcomes. And so if you think about like on a one to five scale, there's a big difference between someone. I'll give you an example of a question. I know what is expected of me at work. Only about half of the people globally can strongly agree to that. That means the other half are at least somewhat confused right? at what they're supposed to do. Think about the problems that creates in a work environment when people just don't know what to do next. That's why managing is so important. But a difference between a four and a five is very significant. And so we lean more toward people given those more the strongly agree kinds of responses. It doesn't mean that they have to strongly agree to every question, of course, but it's a formula we apply based on how uh, that scale relates to different performance outcomes. So yeah, it is, it's a higher bar in terms of how we've determined 
you can call them cutoffs to determine whether you're engaged or not. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason, and the reason is uh, it, it really gets an authentic culture when, when organizations improve on it. It gets them to a very authentic culture that where a leader can feel like they've got something reliable that they've built. And it's been particularly important to see this play out in, during uh, crises. We've uh, studied this research. We've conducted 10 meta-analyses now of how engagement predicts performance outcomes. But we've had a chance to study the relationship between engagement and performance during uh, two previous recessions and now this one. And we find the correlation between engagement and performance is a little bit stronger during tough times. Mm-hmm. And so it's think of it as like an insurance policy. When the going gets tough, are your people going to go get into more of a fight or flight a mentality or are they going to be resilient and have your back because you've had their back? Well, thank you. I've wanted to know that for a long, long time. I've seen the 12 questions. I've heard the 36% figure uh, many times. And now we know the 36% is a high bar, but I think it's also a, a true bar in terms of you just talk to your buddies, eh, maybe a little over a third, but say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm engaged. You know, I dig it. And the others are like, yeah, it's, it's okay, I guess. <laughs> and there's a big chunk in the middle there where they're, they're just kind of, you know, if they get a better opportunity, they'll, they'll take it with another organization. They show up, do the minimum required, not much else, but they're not the people who are really going to be resilient during tough times and surpass the competition with innovative ideas during the good times. Yeah. Well, and it's encouraging that, that some workplaces have indeed gotten to 70%, and, and that feels true as well in terms of if you talk to some folks at some amazing places, it's like, yeah, the vast majority of people really are, are digging this here. So thank you. That was just a appetizer and a moose-bouche <laughs> to our, our main topic today. Well-being at work is is your latest. Kind of what's the, the big idea here and some of the most intriguing discoveries from these many millions of interviews? Well, we wrote a well-being book back in 2010, and that one, we leveraged the global discoveries from that world poll I was talking about earlier. The question we asked for that book was, and all the research we did leading up to it was, are there some universal characteristics in people or elements that drive well-being in terms of people uh, having a thriving overall life and experiencing really good days? Well, we know that every region in the world is somewhat different culturally, but we found there are five elements that were universal and consistently predicted thriving lives and great days for people where they had high high interest, high enjoyment, lower levels of stress, worry, anger, sadness, all those negative emotions we we can list off. And the five that we found, that writing was directed at individuals. How do we help individuals live more thriving lives? And the five are are career well-being, social well-being, financial well-being, physical well-being, and community well-being. And they're in an order for a purpose. This particular book, we decided to aim it at organizational leaders and managers, primarily because we see an issue right now where uh, most organizations don't have what we'd call a net thriving culture, where employees, not only their work life in, in terms of their engagement, but also their overall life is either struggling or suffering. And we saw this play out during the pandemic in particular, where we saw drops in the percentage of thriving employees and spikes in worry and stress in our global data. We're seeing a continuous rise globally in, in the percentage of people that have negative emotions. And uh, even before this uh, pandemic, Pete, we, we were trending on what the new workforce was looking for. And one of the things the new workforce was looking for was 
a workplace that improves their overall life isn't just a job. The separation between work and life already started to fade away. And uh, primarily because we carry these these devices around with us that, that connect us to our work more often, maybe sometimes than we like, and sometimes we can connect with work when we want to in our spare time. But people in the younger generations, you could think about millennial and Gen Z, expect their workplace to improve their life. And all these trends that we saw pre-pandemic just got magnified. Uh, the number one perk people were asking for pre-pandemic was flex time. Boom, we had the great shift. <laughs> A high percentage of people had that flex time. And there, there's all kinds of things I could get into in, in terms of what we, we trended a lot of data during COVID and, and continue to. So there's a lot underneath that as well. Well, that's interesting right there. I mean, so, hey, we got our flex time, but uh, I, my hunch is that we, we're not so much feeling a whole lot of well-being uh, during pandemic times. Yes. It's interesting. Pre-pandemic, the people who worked from home uh, 100% of the time, and by the way, that was only about 4% of the population were 100% work from home. And suddenly that jumped up to um, 48% full-time work from home after the great shift that we call it. And uh, 70% of people in jobs, at least some of the time, and most of those, some of the times were most of the time working from home. But the interesting thing was pre-pandemic, those people who worked from home 100% of the time, that 4%, they had lower levels of reported burnout. During the pandemic, the 100% work from homers actually had higher levels of burnout than the others. So there's something there. And as I talk to organizations, almost all of them that had a lot of work from home folks during COVID or even continue to are, are planning on some type of a hybrid type option going forward. The good news there is the hybrid employees pre-pandemic were the ones that had the highest levels of, of engagement at work. So there's a factor inside engagement around autonomy that's really important. And uh, great managers find ways to build autonomy into jobs and at the same time get involved with people in, in setting goals and holding them accountable, but still still have autonomy and connectedness with, with them. So the solution part of all this really does sit not exclusively, but highly with managers because they're in the best position to know what people are going through and uh, get close enough to people to, to know their, their individual situation. And so then what are some of the, the key practices that contribute to teams and organizations becoming net thriving? At the organizational level, there, there are some, I think, really important foundational things you have to get right. I'll come back to this later if you want me to, but there are some threats and some risks that there are barriers to organizations having a net thriving culture that if, if you don't take care of those, you're going to have some some issues. But one of the things is that it's it's really important for organizations to think about those five elements of well-being that we listed. They're all science-based. We know we can rely on them. If we work on those and improve them, we can make a big difference in people's lives, and they're all changeable to some extent. They're areas everybody can work on. But I would argue that organizations need an organizational structure so that everything that they're offering employees they are aligning with at least one of those five elements or more. So it makes sense to people. Mm -hmm. So people know what, why it exists and why it was developed by the organization. Too often people might have programs, policies, perks that, that are offered by an organization and they either are unaware of it or they don't know why it exists or it just it doesn't come top of mind to them until there's a crisis or something. So the organizational structure is, is important. It's also important that the CEO is highly involved in building a net thriving culture. The reason for that is, is it's anytime we look at culture change, it's owned from the top of the organization, not just stated, but actually owned and an important value that the organization holds close. 
And we're going to see more and more of, of that, I think, coming going forward with all the, the pressure on ESG and uh, the environmental, social, and governance standards that are that are kind of finally coming to a to a head, I think, in terms of uh, some more official standards. And uh, at Gallup, we've been working on the, the the people component of that, the social part, you could say. I think another thing that's really important from a practice standpoint is to equip managers to move from a boss mentality to a coaching mentality and equip them to have the right kinds of well-being conversations that don't feel forced, but rather are more natural. Mm-hmm. So for them to have those natural conversations, there's a progression that has to happen in terms of how they become become upskilled. I think also what organizations can do is develop a network of well-being coaches. And what I mean by that are people who become experts in particular areas and gather best practices and share best practices. Part of that is peer-to-peer, I think is really important. People in the well-being space, people learn a lot from their peers because these are people like me. They're, they don't have somebody who's making a lot more money or whatever, trying to tell them how to have higher well-being. It doesn't have as high a credibility for them. So it's learning from people like me and getting ideas from people like me, but, but collecting best practices and having some experts internally. An example would be, there's so much information out about nutrition. You can look all over the place and you see little tiny studies that say something and the next month they say something else. And I think organizations need someone who integrates the best science and, and teaches it back to employees so they know what they can rely on. And then the other thing I think is important from a practice standpoint is to go through and audit how you're doing things right now, your rules, your guidelines, how you communicate, your facilities, your incentive systems, how you give, how you recognize people, the different events and developmental opportunities you have available. Those can all be audited through the lens of, does this improve an individual well-being? You can do it statistically, you can do it qualitatively, but, but just to go through and hold yourself accountable for everything that you're doing right now and whether it's really, one, utilized and two, related to higher levels of, of well-being for people. So you could go to that level of detail on this, but you know most organizations just want to start somewhere. You know, to start somewhere, you need to get some good measures in place and uh, you need to see where you have variants, where you have some highs and lows and start digging into what's going on and, and what's, you know, study some best practices inside your own organization. But above all, equip your managers to have the right kinds of conversations to move on that boss to coach journey. All right. Well, if we think about some of the particular practices that the, the coaches are learning and, and sharing, could you maybe give us one or two inside each of the, the five elements of well-being that really make a, a world of difference for a relatively small amount of effort. Well, we'll just go down the list. Career well-being, probably the uh, the simplest and uh, most efficient practice you can get really good at is through strengths. So Gallup has a tool, it's called Clifton Strengths, and it's a scientific assessment that will list off your strengths, your 34 strengths, and there's all kinds of combinations that anybody could get, but the key is to understand what your strengths are individually. And when I'm talking about strengths, I'm talking about innate kind of characteristics that are not likely to change significantly once we become adults. We still change and evolve, but they're less likely to change and evolve than something like how we view our workplace or or skills. It's more more innate. So leveraging your own strengths, knowing about them and leveraging them, it just leads for more efficient activities inside organizations where people don't try to be something that they're not and they, they develop through who they are and in a unique way. So that's that's probably the most direct one on career well-being, when people are using their strengths, we've measured this in the moment, they report much higher levels of energy when they can do what they do best. And so continually figuring that out and refining it, but that tool that I mentioned can give people a big head start there. Social well-being 
it starts with onboarding, I think, in organizations. We have, to, we have to make it a priority during onboarding where people get to know other people right away. And I think that became a challenge for, for organizations that were doing onboarding during COVID. Now, there wasn't a lot of hiring going on, but going forward, I think organizations are going to have to have strategies for how they do that because the advantage on the social well-being front is there for people who already knew each other and working from home and remotely. That's not difficult to connect on on Zoom and to have conversations if you already know somebody and have worked with them for a long time. But it's really the, the newer people that where I think there's a big gap there that needs to be filled. But social well-being, we have a question we ask on our engagement survey called it's worded, I have a best friend at work. It's kind of controversial because not everybody thinks that that's important in the workplace, but it, it links to all kinds of outcomes. So we kept it in there. And that's that's the social well-being component. And people ask me, how do you how do you change that? How do you affect that? I would argue it's the easiest of, of the engagement elements to act on because it, it, it requires creating situations where people have a chance to get to know one another and kind of getting out of the way and letting human nature take over. Mm-hmm. We're human beings. We're social. We tend to connect naturally if we know something about someone else. So it's not one you have to try to force or anything like that. But there's a couple thoughts there on social. On financial, uh, financial well-being is about two things, if I'm going to boil it down. It's about reducing stress. It can be related to money, of course, but it's not completely about the amount of money you make. It's also about how you manage that money to reduce stress, uh, daily stress, and increase longer-term security. Okay. How should I be spending my money to do that? Well, one thing is is we have so much automation now, we don't have to think about paying bills as much anymore, which helps a lot. Helps reduce stress. That's true. I like that a lot. <laughs> it is rare I write a check. It is, and I'm kind of irritated. <laughs> yeah, it is. The activity of writing that check can. So automation can help. The other thing is once we take care of our basic needs, reduce stress, spending money on experiences we've seen, other people have seen in the academic literature, spending money on experiences lasts. You develop stories, you know, the stories might even evolve that you had during those experiences, but they live on. Whereas the the physical purchases, while they're nice for a short period of time, that kind of fades a bit. We've all kind of experienced that. But uh, spending money on the right kinds of things to, so that you're building those stories and experiences with people, I think is, is, is a really kind of creative way of prioritizing the extra money you might blow on something else. So I think that, you know, money management's a big factor, of course, but then kind of aiming it at how do I, how do I create more really good experiences with, with other people with the money? And sometimes it's, it's your own individual experience, but in many cases, it's experiences with other people. Physical well-being, you might immediately think of physical well-being as uh, disease burden or the lack of disease burden, and that's certainly a part of it. Imagine your life in such a way where you reduce that, and that became so apparent during COVID where the people who had less disease burden were just more resilient to the virus. And so some of our researchers developed a model around that, and it was amazingly accurate at predicting mortality rates. Now, now, when you say disease burden, does that just mean I have a lot of diseases or how do we think about that? Well, it can range anywhere from obesity to heart disease to pre-existing condition, cancer, hypertension. So even de- depression, anxiety fall into disease burden, but those are more psychological. But the point we try to make about physical well-being is that the end goal should be, uh, because some of our disease burden, we can't do anything about. It's genetic, right? So... The goal under the physical well-being umbrella should be that we manage our life in whatever situation we're in to increase energy so that we can get things done that we want to get done. 
Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the things we can influence involve what we eat, involve the quality of sleep that we get and uh, the movement or movement. We call this exercise now. <laughs> the people that uh, we studied, George Gallup did a study of, he called them the old oldsters, but uh, they lived to be 95 plus. And uh, one thing that they had in common was that they, they kept working, by the way, until they're many of them 70s and 80s they just kept working but they had jobs that required them to move around a lot Mm -hmm. not just all farming jobs either there are all kinds of different jobs but they 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 moved a lot and so i mean they also ate smaller meals they they had jobs that they loved they loved to work their their spare time was spent with family and friends Mm -hmm. so you can kind of see those five elements coming out in there they lived in a variety of different types of communities some urban some rural some suburban so the type of community wasn't a differentiator but i just thought that was interesting that a lot of what he learned back then studying these people who lived long lives even though their practices weren't identical to what we can do now they they had some of those same themes that that stuck out and well while we're talking physical so move more that's good (laughs) any uh quick best practices associated with uh, the sleeping better and the eating better well, um, one is both too much sleep and too little are both bad. That's what all the research is showing. Uh, but it's really the quality of the sleep that's the key. Do you wake up feeling well rested, refreshed? I'm a big I'm a big fan of the short power nap, going conscious for ten minutes. Mm-hmm. That's very refreshing. I reviewed some research that I found very interesting that that said that that showed. Actually, there's a YouTube on it as well that shows visually this effect with sleep that it's the only organ in our body, apparently, where the waste cells only leave, only get drained out or cleaned out when we sleep. The rest of our body is continuously getting rid of waste. So the brain is the only organ? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you can kind of feel that when you take a nap or wake up feeling well rested. I use sleep in my writing. Not that I'm writing when I'm sleeping, but I just kind of learned this trick where day one, I'll kind of try to get in my head all the information I can around the topic I'm writing on. And then the next morning after I sleep on it, it somehow kind of gets integrated better. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes out a lot more smoothly than it would where I've kind of struggled in day one to even write good sentences. But I think sleep was a really good one to just kind of think about how you do it and when you do it and how you manage that effectively. On uh, diet... And again, there's all kinds of advice on diet, but to me, from what I've read, the two takeaways are try to reduce processed food and eat smaller amounts. I mean, the calorie thing is still a thing. It still mm-hmm. it still means something. There's been so much emphasis on what you eat, but uh, the amount still matters. And that's, that's the hardest thing to manage, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's physical. And how about community? Community at a basic level is about making sure you live in a safe area, having a safe place to live, and having housing that's adequate for you and your family. And at a higher level, community well-being is about uh, giving back, giving in a way that that makes sense for you. And the giving part can vary by person. It can vary by, by stage of life. But organizations can really set people up for that by just sharing opportunities for giving, connecting people who have similar passions and interests together, and uh, just providing a wide range of opportunities and giving as an organization first. So here's what we're doing as an organization to contribute to our community and to, to society in general. In many, probably most cases, organizations can do that through what they do in their work, their business. But outside of uh, the work that they do, they can do it in so many other ways as well. 
So that's an important one. Uh, neuroscientists found that the part of our brain that lights up when we get something lights up even more when we give. So they call it the helper's high. So again, I think organizations can play a huge role there and, and on all, all these elements. We, by, by putting some defaults in place that make it easy for people what, to do what's in their, their best intentions. All right. Well, so, so we've got some principles in terms of how organizations and leaders can facilitate some more good stuff happening and some specific practices for individuals. Can you, you share with us a cool story or example or a case study of a team or organization that went from not so much well-being to boatloads of well-being and, and how that unfolded? Well, those areas that I listed off are the ones that I've seen leveraged the best. I think there's still a long ways to go for most organizations on the well-being front. So, for instance, on the career well-being component, we've seen people move from the bottom of our database over time all the way to the top decile of our database, top 10%. And they did that by being persistent. That's one thing. But there's kind of four patterns we saw in organizations that create change. And one of them is, that I mentioned this earlier, it's got to start strategically with the CEO and the board thinking about why they're trying to create a net thriving culture or a highly engaged culture. And people, they need to articulate that and explain it to people so they know why why it's happening, that it's not just a flavor of the month kind of thing. And it's it's really a part of who we're going to be as an organization. Second, they had excellent communication. They just continuously communicated best practices and they continuously communicated what we're doing and why. And uh, it's almost like over-communication. So, so people know the why. And then even all the way from from when they're fielding a survey to what they're going to do after it and how they're going to create action plans and and train managers. Uh, the third is that manager piece. It's it's uh, upskilling managers from boss to coach is really important. And then the the fourth pattern we saw was was accountability. They make it clear that it's part of a manager's job to engage their workers and uh, and to improve the lives of their workers. Those are kind of some general patterns we saw. But yeah, we've we've seen organizations move from the bottom all the way to the top of the database. So I know this stuff is, is changeable. I think well-being is more difficult to change than engagement, but you've got to get the engagement part right first, because that's what I, I think of as the nuts and bolts of managing. If you want to help individuals in your organization improve their lives, you've got to start by taking care of the, the work part of it, because that builds trust where people aren't second guessing your intentions and uh, it builds more comfortable conversations so that managers and the individuals they're managing can have open dialogue. And not everybody's going to want to talk about their whole life, and that's fine, but it opens the door. Mm-hmm. And at minimum, managers can direct people to the right resources and help them know what's there from the organization. But at maximum, managers become coaches that actually help people improve their lives, give them some advice, and connect them to the right other people who might be on the same path as them. All right. Thank you. Well, Jim, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things. I talked earlier about some barriers or risks to improving a a culture from maybe struggling to what we call net thriving, where people in your organization not only have very positive views of their present life, but also think the next five years will be even better. Those five elements I listed lead to that. But there are some barriers and they can kind of trick people, I think, a little bit. Well, one of them in particular can. I'll just list off a couple of them. One of them that I think maybe most commonly becomes a barrier are to assume that our policies, programs, and perks will change your culture. If that were the case, 
a lot of organizations wouldn't have culture problems. Uh, I think policies, programs, and perks are very important, but they won't necessarily change your culture. What you need to change your culture are managers who are well-skilled to lead other people because they're, they're again, the ones closest to the lives in their organization. And uh, so having poorly skilled managers is another big risk. And so uh, upskilling managers to move from boss to coach, I think, is really important. And that involves integrating several things that are kind of disparate in organizations right now. You've got, you know, over here, you might have a wellness program that's offered to people. Over here, you might have an employee engagement survey and program. Over here, you might have performance management. And uh, over here, you might have learning and development. That boss to coach journey needs to bring all those things together so it makes sense to managers and so that it also leverages the strengths of each person. It's, strengths, it's a strengths-based journey where you're starting off with who you are as an individual and building on top of that instead of trying to make everybody the same or trying to get people to become someone who they're not. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of my favorite quotes is, uh, is one that was attributed to the great Albert Einstein, but he actually looked it up. He actually said this in a, in a more complex way, but make everything as simple as possible, but not too simple. Mm -hmm. I'm a researcher and the complexity is already there. So I, to me, uh, one of the things I learned along the way is we've got to make sure that the research is A, accurate, but also, and that's the not, but not too simple, but also applicable and uh, useful to people. Mm -hmm. So I, I really like that quote. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I've often referenced the Whitehall studies, the particular part of the Whitehall studies were done over in Europe where they tracked people longitudinally. And one sub part of those studies where they looked at mortality and uh, heart disease and other uh, future health issues, one sub part of that big study looked at workplaces and they found that uh, workplaces with better environments they call it organizational justice, but workplaces with better environments, the concepts overlap with what we call engagement. Those better environments had lower risk of coronary heart disease and uh, lower mortality rates, and they controlled for all sorts of things. So I reference that a lot, and I think it's really important research. And how about a favorite book? I like Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. I think it just does an excellent job of bringing together two parts of, of well-being and the remembering self and, and experiencing self which we, we talk about in, in well-being at work as well. I think it's important to think about those two parts of, of how we experience life. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? This is kind of geeky, but I, I leverage a lot Google Scholar mm -hmm. and uh, PubMed yeah, uh, because they're, they're just great sources for finding things quickly and searching. And a favorite habit? I think that 10-minute power nap, I try to get it as many days as I can, mm -hmm. is really important to kind of uh, have a refreshing afternoon. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you frequently? Probably the one that I see quoted the most is 70% of the variance in team engagement is influenced by the manager. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? You could go to uh, gallup.com and we have a whole series of new articles and findings coming out all the time, reports, or uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. That's another place. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say uh, make sure you know your strengths and have them clearly in mind and the strengths of your coworkers. And the one thing to build on that, because you got to direct your strengths at something, make sure you have a minimum of one meaningful conversation per week. All right. Jim, this has been fun. Thanks so much. And much luck to you with all your good work on well-being. 
Thank you, Pete. Appreciate the invitation. You know, I really liked what Jim had to say about sleep and naps. And maybe it's just because I love napping and I feel a little bit guilty about it sometimes to hear a super researcher who's gone deep into the data, give that as one of his top tips is reassuring that I'm not lazy. It's a best practice. So thanks, Jim, for that. I hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP673. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 